Welcome to the Press On Podcast. Expect to be inspired, challenged, and strengthened. In this episode, we'll hear from John Launchbury on physicalism and faith. I want to talk about physicalism, physical plus ism. Physicalism is a philosophy that you may never have heard of, but many of us are likely being affected by it. In particular, anyone educated in science may have inadvertently taken physicalism on board too, and physicalism can be significantly damaging to faith. But before we can discuss physicalism itself, we first need to talk about science. Science is powerful and exciting. It's been incredibly successful, particularly over the last few hundred years. Through science, we understand that lightning is a natural electrical discharge, not the wrath of the gods. That diseases have organic origin, not malevolent spirits. That the earth is round, not flat, and so on. Imagine a world without antibiotics, where any infection is cause for serious concern. Without long-distance communication or a round trip to the village five miles away occupies a whole day. So what is science and why is it so successful? Briefly, science is the study of observed events and the development of analytic models that can predict how things will behave. When a particular science is in its infancy, the models are descriptive only. They describe what is, what happens, when, and under what circumstances. But as the science becomes more refined, the models become more quantitative. They gain a strongly mathematical flavor, allowing detailed calculations to be performed. The theory of gravity is an excellent example of this. For thousands of years, people knew that things fall to the ground when dropped. It just happens. No one could say why. It just did. By Newton's time, people knew quite a lot about heaviness, gravis in Latin, including a particularly surprising fact. Newton writes, It has been now for a long time observed by others that all sorts of heavy bodies descend to the earth from equal heights in equal times. That had been a surprise. People thought that heavier objects would fall faster, but they didn't. And the question was, why? Newton invented an explanation. He proposed a law that stated that everything attracts everything else, depending only on their masses and the distances between them. With precise calculations, he showed that this simple mathematical relationship explained everything from dropped groceries to the paths of planets and moons. Stunning discovery. In time, scientists discovered that Newton's law wasn't quite right. The planet Mercury, for example, kept drifting away from what Newton's law of gravity predicted. This issue was ultimately addressed by Einstein. He reformulated gravity not as an attractive force, but rather as curvature in space-time. Again, he presented mathematical equations to describe it, much more complicated than Newton's. And now the new model, Einstein's equations, matched observations as precisely as could be measured. This is the strength of science, the willingness to revisit old ideas and reformulate them when discrepancies arise. And in case it's not clear, I'm a big fan of science. However, the stunning success of science has led many people to go further. Because science has been so good at providing physical explanations for so many phenomena, it becomes natural to presume that 
all things are going to be explainable in this way, that everything in the universe is, in principle, explainable in terms of matter and forces and so on. This presumption is called physicalism. It's the thesis that everything is physical, that there is nothing over and above the physical. Those of you who have been educated in the sciences may be nodding at this point. It seems obvious. Of course, everything will have a physical explanation. In fact, physicalism is the unstated assumption of most scientists. It's become the prevailing acceptable view in large parts of Western society. Anything else is looked down upon as superstition or magical thinking, or as blind and misguided faith that may be okay for children, along with Santa and the Easter Bunny. But note this, physicalism is not scientifically established. The thesis of physicalism may seem reasonable because physical explanations have been found for very many phenomena, but no science experiment has been done that demonstrates that every phenomenon in the universe is fundamentally physical. Indeed, it seems likely that such an experiment would be impossible to formulate. And until physicalism can be demonstrated scientifically, it remains just an expectation. That means physicalism is a philosophy rather than a scientific theory. It is an assumption, a presumption. It's a belief. It's a faith. And physicalism is a widely held faith, even though it's rarely noticed explicitly. To many people, it just seems so obvious. And that describes me 20 years ago. Without knowing it, I had fallen into physicalism. I was living with an unstated assumption that everything in the universe was physical, atoms and forces and so on. There didn't seem to be a need for anything more. And once I couldn't see the need for anything more, then there didn't seem to be anything more. And if there wasn't anything more, where does that leave God? Having fallen into physicalism, I struggle to see how anything supernatural could fit in. If the whole universe is just physical stuff, then that rules out a divine spirit being. So I started to wonder, perhaps God was just an idea people made up. Maybe that's enough for there to be some kind of meaning? But I was stuck. I still loved the scriptures with their teachings and narratives but I didn't know how to square them with the physicalist assumptions I had silently taken on board. And I think a lot of people find themselves in this situation, especially our youth. This is the danger of physicalism. It is a silent drainer of faith. It rules out anything but natural physical explanations a priori. In particular, the philosophy of physicalism prohibits the idea of God in just about any form but without empirical evidence. The strength of physicalism is that it drives people towards finding explanations whenever and wherever they may be found. But the danger is that it claims the whole universe for itself. If we found something in the universe that lies outside the explanatory power of physicalism, then physicalism would have to retreat. It could no longer claim to be all-encompassing. It could no longer claim that the universe contains nothing but just physical stuff. And if the universe can be shown to contain more than the purely physical, then the potential for meaning and for the divine comes flooding back. That was my experience, at least. It turned out that I didn't have to look far afield. 
There was a counterexample right under my nose all the time. Or perhaps behind my nose would be more accurate. It turns out that the phenomenon of consciousness appears to be beyond any physical explanation, even in principle. And if consciousness, something we all experience, cannot be given a physical explanation, then we each have direct and personal evidence that physicalism is insufficient. So that's what we'll do. The rest of this article will focus on whether or not consciousness is likely to have a physical explanation in terms of all the fields, forces, particles, and so on studied by physicists, or whether there is something fundamentally different here. At the outset, however, we should be alert and tread carefully. Understanding consciousness is a very hard problem. As the philosopher Chalmers attests, after many years researching the topic, anyone who claims to have it all sorted out is likely to have fallen into one or more of the innumerable traps for the unwary. Our discussion will necessarily be technical at times, including touching on quantum mechanics. But don't worry, feel free to skip any details you may not follow and just track the big picture of the argument. So consciousness. Consciousness has been a challenge to thinkers of every age. Perhaps the most famous slogan of philosophy is about consciousness. Cogito ergo sum, concluded Descartes, I think, therefore I am. He identified consciousness as the one foundational experience we all have. And what do we mean here by consciousness? I'm using the term to mean subjective, first-person experiencing of well, of whatever we're experiencing. It may be the textured experience of taste, or color, or sadness, or sounds, or love, or even of pain. It's the underlying felt experience of the present moment, unwrapped from all the analysis our minds tend to place over it. This phenomenon of conscious experiencing can be noticed at any time, and especially well during mindfulness. The conscious experiencing of the present moment seems to be the one thing that we can absolutely rely on empirically. Everything we know about is mediated through this experience of consciousness. Theoretically, all the rest could be imaginary, a dream, like prisoners in Plato's cave experiencing shadows on the wall, or a brain in a jar, or maybe we're all like Neo, wired up to the matrix and experiencing whatever the computer simulation decides to feed to our brains. So how about we use science to study consciousness itself? Well, immediately we hit a problem. On the one hand, we can normally tell whether someone else is conscious. They'll be moving or breathing or any other number of markers. But on the other hand, all of these indicators and measures are proxies established by analogy. They don't measure consciousness directly. Instead, they work as follows. I know that I'm conscious, and so by analogy, I presume that another creature who shows corresponding physical attributes and behaviors is also conscious. But it's a proxy. No one has come up with a test that definitively demonstrates consciousness in others. Consider the following case. The neuroscientist Adrian Owen had a problem. His patient was a woman in a persistent vegetative state. 
In this state, a person has lost cognitive neurological function and has no awareness of the environment, but may retain non-cognitive function, including things like a sleep-wake cycle. Their eyes might even move around. But as far as we can tell, the person is just not there anymore. So Dr. Owen, facing his first such patient, decides to do an experiment. He places his patient in an MRI and asks her to imagine playing tennis. And immediately, her brain lights up just like a conscious person. And when he asks her to stop, it quietens down. So is she conscious or not? It's still impossible to know. Owen's experiment has since been performed many times on many other patients, and doctors debate whether the test demonstrates the presence of consciousness or not. Are these patients having subjective first-person experiences, or is it just residual brain activity? Even with an MRI machine able to watch neural activity directly, we cannot actually tell whether another human being is conscious or not. The challenge with consciousness is that we have no way to observe it externally. I can measure how tall you are, how likable your personality is, your IQ or EQ, etc. But I cannot measure the state and nature of your consciousness other than measuring proxies and extrapolating from that. This leaves us in a bit of a conundrum. Consciousness seems to be the one phenomenon that we can be sure of from a philosophical perspective, and yet the fundamental character of it is largely outside the reach of our current scientific techniques. Western scientific study is built on what can be called third-person perspectives. Whether we study chemical interactions or social structures, we do from the perspective of an external observer. These are objective viewpoints where each item of study is an object distinct from the observer. But consciousness doesn't seem to have an objective view. It appears to be a phenomenon that has to be studied from the inside, from a first-person perspective. Nagel, one of the earliest Western researchers to wake up to this perspective, states, If physicalism is to be defended, the phenomenological features of consciousness must themselves be given a physical account. But when we examine their subjective character, it seems that such a result is impossible. The reason is that every subjective phenomenon is essentially connected with a single point of view, and it seems inevitable that an objective physical theory will abandon that point of view. His argument is that physics is objective, but the act of experiencing is fundamentally subjective. It is something tangible to be seeing red or to be feeling pain or to be experiencing sadness. These individual subjective elements of the mind are called qualia, and the essence of qualia seems to get lost if we ever try to move to a third-person perspective of pure physicality. Here's Chalmers again. The really hard problem of consciousness is the problem of experience. When we think and perceive, there is a whir of information processing, but there's also a subjective aspect. As Nagel has put it, there is something it is like to be a conscious organism. 
this subjective aspect is experienced. When we see, for example, we experience visual sensations, the felt quality of redness, the experience of dark and light, the quality of depth in a visual field. Other experiences go along with a perception in different modalities, the sound of a clarinet, the smell of mothballs. Then there are bodily sensations from pains to orgasms, mental images that are conjured up internally, the felt quality of emotion and the experience of a stream of conscious thought. What unites all of these states is that there is something it is like to be in them. All of them are states of experience. The implication of this is that we shall never understand the nature of consciousness simply by looking from the outside. We need a different scientific approach. Unfortunately, there's a starting point at hand. Since its inception, the core of Buddhism has been to study the nature of consciousness and still has some of the most advanced scientific perspectives on it. Here's how the Dalai Lama puts it. Consciousness is a very elusive object, and in this sense, it is quite unlike the focus on a material object, such as a biochemical process. Whatever our philosophical views about the nature of consciousness, whether it is ultimately material or not, through a rigorous first-person method, we can learn to observe the phenomena including their characteristics and causal dynamics. On this basis, I envision the possibility of broadening the scope of the science of consciousness and enriching our understanding of the human mind in scientific terms. Given that subjectivity is a primary element of consciousness, it will have to be a fully developed and rigorous first-person empiricism. There is tremendous potential for contemplative traditions such as Buddhism to make a substantive contribution. Every scientific discipline needs to be able to hone its instruments so that the observations are real and repeatable. When the telescope is the conscious mind viewing itself, the challenges of self-delusion are profound. The practices of mindfulness and insight meditation have been developed to permit exactly this kind of study. Reliable internal observations are repeatable by individual researchers on multiple occasions and, more significantly, across multiple distinct researchers. These techniques enable a discipline of first-person science. The prominent computer scientist Henk Barendrecht, now highly accomplished in Buddhist insight meditation, devotes his research efforts to understanding the mind from the perspective of its processing and components. He says, no matter how many levels of cognition and feedback we place on top of sensory input in a model of the mind, it a priori seems not able to account for experiences. We could always simulate these processes on an old-fashioned computer consisting of relays or even play it as a social game with cards. It's not that I object to basing our consciousness on outer agents like the card players. We depend on nature in a similar way. It's the claimed emergence of consciousness as a side effect of the card game that seems absurd. As a theoretical computer scientist myself, I share Baron Dragg's view. I can envision software producing all the cognitive functionality of parsing visual and auditory signals, processing language, generating thoughts and ideas, and so on. But I know of nothing in computer science that could build experiencing into software.
How would you program the genuine felt experience of pain? I can't even begin to think where to start. Even if the software were reflective and able to cognitively process its own state, I see no reason why that would make the leap to experiential consciousness, to qualia. Of course, it's always challenging to argue from a position of not being able to conceive of something. If we were asserting that consciousness cannot be an emergent property just because we can't comprehend it, then it wouldn't be a compelling argument. It could just be outside of our experience. But we're actually arguing something different. Emergent properties arise as a consequence of attributes that are already present. For example, um, I might want to build a good-sized business by combining many small sales with small profits. However, if the individual sales made no money at all, then combining lots of them would still make no money. Only if the individual sales had a potential for profit could I build a profitable enterprise. Here's another more technical example. The enzymatic effect of a protein is a surprising emergent property. Just by considering the sequence of the amino acid base pairs that make up the protein, it's not at all obvious that it would act as an enzyme. However, its enzymatic effect arises as a consequence of the three-dimensional spatial orientation of its atomic charges. Target molecules fit into nooks within the protein and are pulled apart or pushed together by the electrical charges. The charged nooks arise because the amino acids have both a 3D aspect and an atomic charge aspect. So the building blocks for the emergent behavior are already present in the components from which the whole is constructed. The same analysis explains how information processing aspects of mental cognition may arise. The molecular structures in the neurons of our brains have rudimentary capabilities to process information. So it's not unreasonable to think that intelligent information processing capabilities could emerge as a combination of those components. But when we come to consciousness, the felt experience of qualia, things are very different. None of the component elements appear to have any subjective aspect to them. The equations of physics do not assign any subjective felt experience to the atoms and molecules that make up our physical brains. And it seems impossible to create subjectivity through combinations of non-subjective elements. Adding up many zero quantities still yields zero. So where does consciousness come from? What is it, this apparently non-physical part of our being. The quantum physicist Henry Stapp argues that consciousness is built into the universe at a fundamental level, that any understanding of physics that ignores it is doomed to failure. The hard problem is the problem of conscious experience. What is it? Why is it present at all? Why is it so different from other parts of nature, namely the objective aspect of reality? Chalmers asks these questions and says that right now we have no candidate theory that answers these questions, but we do. Chalmers suggests that there is perhaps a small loophole in quantum theory that might provide an opening for consciousness. But there is not just a small loophole, there is a gigantic lacuna which consists of fully half of the theory, and this whole provides an ideal home for consciousness. Stapp worked with the great physicists Pauli and Heisenberg, so he's been in the field a while. 
Quantum mechanics, he says, is fundamentally about the interaction of consciousness with the quantum potential. Quantum mechanics models the probabilities of events occurring. These probabilities are called wave functions. They express the myriad of possible outcomes that may arise when subatomic particles interact. According to the mathematics of quantum mechanics, the universe is a bubbling cloud of all possible outcomes of every interaction of every particle. But we don't experience the universe that way. We don't experience multiple possibilities. We experience specific events. So how do we connect the quantum mathematics of probabilities with the everyday experience of specific physical states? Something appears to make the probabilities of the wave function keep collapsing down to particular concrete events. There are five distinct interpretations as to how this may work, from particle wave duality to many worlds. Stapp points out that all five interpretations require two separate elements, the physical universe and consciousness. Searle, when confronted by the suggestion that quantum theory with its inherent dualistic ontology is important to the resolution of the mind-brain problem, says he will wait until quantum theorists come into agreement among themselves about the interpretation of the theory. But that misses the point completely. All interpretations agree on the need for dualistic ontology, with one aspect being the quantum analog of matter and the other aspect pertaining to experiences. Thus, the whole debate among quantum theorists is essentially a debate about the mind-matter connection. That's very powerful. According to Stapp, every way we have invented to understand quantum mechanics has mind separate from matter, and the mind-matter connection is a fundamental component of the theory. He claims that we cannot understand the mechanics of the universe without addressing the interaction of consciousness with the physical world. Bohr and Heisenberg, early developers of quantum mechanics, understood this. In our description of nature, the purpose is not to disclose the real essence of phenomena, but only to track down, as far as possible, relations between the multifold aspects of our experience. And quantum theory has led the physicist far away from the simple materialistic views that prevailed in the natural sciences of the 19th century. At this point, no one knows how consciousness, the brain, and quantum mechanics all interact. In fact, the whole area is a topic of very active scientific exploration. However, we don't need to figure out the details to be still pretty confident that the experiential aspect of consciousness is distinct from what we know of the physical structures of the universe. Okay, let's come up for air. We've seen good evidence that the essence of what it means to be a being, that is to have experiential consciousness, is distinct from the physical world of atoms, forces, and so on. They appear to be intimately connected in the interaction between the physical quantum potentiality and subjective consciousness, and perhaps they even co-define each other, but they're ontologically distinct. And of course, none of this implies the existence of God, at least not as far as the revealed God of the Bible is concerned. But hoping for that would be unrealistic, and it's not what we set out to do. 
But the evidence we reviewed does demonstrate that mechanistic arguments that deny the existence of the divine or supernatural are flawed. When I had unwittingly taken on the assumptions of physicalism, I had struggled to see how God was consistent with science. But once I recognized that our current physical descriptions don't even include conscious experience, I could let go of physicalism. And now the biblical accounts no longer trigger the cognitive dissonance I had experienced when I unwittingly held physicalist presumptions. And I would go further. Coming face to face with the nature of consciousness opened new realizations for me in Scripture. To explain what I mean, listen to Barendrecht again. Spiritual reflection introduces us to awareness beyond ordinary consciousness, which is without content, but nevertheless conscious. It is called pure consciousness. This phenomenon may be explained by comparing our personality to the images on a celluloid film in which we're playing the title role of our life. Although everything that is familiar to us is depicted on the film, it's in the dark. We need light to see the film as a movie. It may be the case that this pure consciousness is the missing explanatory link between the purely neurophysiological activity of our brain and the conscious mind that we at least think to possess. This pure light is believed to transcend the person. The difference between you and me is in the matter, that is the celluloid of the film. That which gives us awareness is said to come from a common source, the pure consciousness acting as the necessary light. The Apostle Paul describes our nature with respect to the divine using comparable language. When debating with the philosophers in Athens, he says, God is not far from any one of us, for in him we live and move and have our being. As some of your own poets have said, we are his offspring. Therefore, since we are God's offspring, we should not think that the divine being is like gold or silver or stone, an image made by human design and skill. That sentence is very powerful. In the divine, we live and move and have our being. Here's an analogy I found to be helpful. First, I like to think of each of us as if we are waves on the ocean. And just as waves are connected with other waves, so we are always connected with one another, dependent on one another. I'm a wave, you're a wave. So then what was Jesus? Jesus was the perfect wave, the wave that I aspire to be. But now, what is God? An even better wave? <laughs> no. God is the ocean. We are ripples on the surface of the divine. In him we live and move and have our being. He is not far from each one of us. I have come to experience my bright conscious awareness as a tangible connection with the divine. Every time I pause and become aware of my conscious experiencing, I am aware of God deeply and profoundly. Thanks for joining us on the Press On podcast. You've been listening to John Launchbury. For more, you can visit pressonjournal.org.